everybody, it's Alicia here, and today I am talking to Annabelle Andreu. Now, Annabelle is a family law and divorce lawyer. She works for Debenhams Ottaway Solicitors, who very kindly agreed to collaborate on this podcast, because although it's a topic that, you know, we hope none of us ever end up having to go through a divorce, it does happen, as we all know, and uh, we want to make it as easy and good a a separation as possible. So we are recording this November 2022. So when we talk about current things, hopefully we'll we'll have a little blog alongside with any updates when we release it. But just in case um, we wanted to make make you aware of when we're recording. So hi, Annabelle. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Lovely to be here. So tell us what you've got plenty of experience of helping couples go through the divorce proceedings how can you have a good divorce there are lots of ways and it comes down to your attitude quite often most people will already be in quite a high state of emotion to get to the point where they are now considering a divorce and you need to go in with an attitude to think let's just get this done we've accepted that the marriage or civil partnership is over and we now need to try and conclude as swiftly as possible so that we can move on independently and that is probably more important when you've got children as well because we need to ensure that their welfare is protected and that they can have as much stability um, as possible. Absolutely so starting the process as you say they will have there will have been no doubt many a discussion before it actually happening. But in terms of the actual process itself, how does it work? What does one do? So if you are wishing to get a divorce or dissolve your civil partnership, you can do that at home in the first instance. And it's quite important to recognise from the offset that the divorce is quite procedural and administrative. But then alongside with that, you need to deal with your finances, your property, and in some case, your arrangements with any children. So to deal with the divorce, you can actually go to the government website and apply for a divorce. There is a court fee, which is £593. And earlier on in the year, we had a change in law. Previously, you used to have to give the court a reason as to why you are getting a divorce. But now you can just say to the court, I want to get a divorce. And in fact, you and your spouse or civil partner can actually do that together. You can apply jointly, which some couples find quite helpful as it again reduces um, the tension and you're both going through with this. That's the divorce. And then separately, you would deal with the finances and the arrangements for children. So that £593 fee, is that each person or is that each application? So do you both have to, if you're not going to do it together because you can't, do you both have to apply? How does that work? So, So that's just the court application. So there's one fee and that's it. So that is the fee that you're making. Now, that's obviously should be recognised separately from legal costs. And if you were to then go and seek the um, advice of a lawyer, or if you were to go and seek mediation services, that would be a cost separate from this um, court fee. So can you tell me a tiny bit about the mediation services? Because I I know that in the past I've spoken to law 
firms that work with a mediator? So mediation is a process whereby you and your spouse, civil partner, would sit down with a qualified mediator and think about the ways in which you can resolve matters. Some mediators will discuss just the finances with you. Some mediators will just discuss the child arrangements with you. And sometimes you might do dual mediation, which is where you'll discuss all of the issues. You might not necessarily do it in one session, but you might do it at different times and different sessions. The purpose of mediation is to try and reach an agreement. The mediator is independent. They do not act for either of you and they cannot advise either of you. Their role is to help facilitate conversations and help you navigate which way you need to go to be able to reach an agreement. So it can be a very effective way. The starting point, I would say, is that you and your spouse or civil partner need to be be able to at least sit in the same room. In some cases, that's just not appropriate. Um, In some cases, that's not fair either. But if you and your spouse or civil partner can sit in the same room, then it can be a very effective way. And then if you can reach an agreement, especially if it's about the finances, then ordinarily you would go to a lawyer afterwards to prepare what's called a financial consent order. And that's the very key document which sets out your agreement and makes it legally binding. So it sounds to me as though if you can do that first step with um, a mediator rather than a lawyer, you're going to ultimately save yourself quite a lot of money in in legal fees backwards and forwards. Absolutely. It, It can be like that, but also what it can do can very much keep the communications between you. A real key part of it, and I would say a key ingredient to being able to have a good divorce, is keeping up that dialogue and communication. Um, And that's really important. And that will also help you if you've got children so that you can continue to have somewhat of a relationship going forward, at least in your capacity as parents. Now, some people do have independent legal advice alongside their mediation, and that's perfectly normal. And that, again, can be a way of keeping costs down, keeping costs controlled um, and making quite a lot of progress. Amazing. And we're talking talking about communication, communicating with the child or children involved in a divorce. Have you got any thoughts on that? It really depends on how old the children are. And it also depends on what they know already. If the children have heard their parents arguing every day for quite a period of time, they will be fully aware that something is wrong. Um, and they will be fully aware that mum and dad or mum and mum and dad and dad do not have a good relationship at all. If that child is of an age, maybe over the age of eight or nine, they might have heard the term divorce. It's very, very common for for children to have friends whose parents are are not together for all sorts of reasons. So the children need to know that there will be some changes. But how you have those conversations will largely depend on how old they are. If you have teenage children, there needs to be a real real recognition that they're also dealing with stuff of their own. They might be having lots going on at school. They've got all the usual hormonal changes that teenagers will have. And there needs to be an expectation that they might react quite badly. They might be quite argumentative with one parent. But 
a key thing to emphasize is that everything is going to be okay. Even in the most acrimonious of divorces I have dealt with, where the temperature is so high and the conflict is really quite bad, in the end, at the end of it, however long that takes, everything will be okay. And it's just about supporting your children through that. And also thinking about the other agencies out there who can provide support, because sometimes it's not appropriate to be having those discussions with your children. So perhaps if there's a school counsellor who can assist, if there are other wellbeing groups that your children can, can attend, then that's brilliant. And the final thing I would say is try and keep up as much continuity and stability as possible. So if parents are now living separately as they're going through their divorce, still try and ensure that those same patterns are there. So if one parent is always picking up a child from an after school club or an extracurricular activity, try and keep that continuity there as best as possible so that their life and their well-being and development isn't affected. And I think that um, is such an important point because I've sat certainly in therapy with young people where the communication is completely broken down and they end up being forced into being the messenger between parents, which is just so toxic, isn't it? So somehow, I mean, I don't know what, you know, sometimes it can be very difficult to talk to your ex-partner, but having some way of communicating, whether that's text or email and not expecting children to be in the middle, I think is really important. No, of, of course it is. Um and sometimes what we see is, you know, tell your mum this or tell your dad that. And it, it's not fair on them. And I think a real thing that we see that's quite concerning is children feeling that they need to rehearse that conversation in their head before going to speak to the other parent in case they get something wrong, in case they put it in the incorrect way. And then an argument starts and then they feel like that's their fault. And again, you usually see this with children who are often between about nine and 14, because in addition to that, they've got their own things going on and they're trying to navigate their own way as, as they make their way through the start of adolescence and puberty. So that's really important. And at the start of your separation, you need to decide between yourselves as the adults what your, what your communication boundaries are going to be. And you need to respect that. So whilst I'm saying, you know, keep up that dialogue, at the same time, have boundaries in place, especially if there is quite a volatile relationship and especially where domestic abuse is a feature as well. Yeah. So on that, that could be saying, right, we will only communicate on the WhatsApp group between the two of us. So the children are not involved in that WhatsApp group. And this is purely for arrangements. It's not, it's nothing about school school um what's the what's the word I'm looking for probably something like score gaining or something like that and 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 that's absolutely right I know quite a few parents who actually set up new email addresses and that will be their separate point and that can also be quite helpful for the parents as well if you don't want to have alerts coming up so you can perhaps disable the notifications and you can then decide when you want to check your email account for that particular email address. That can be quite a helpful tool if you are leaving quite a volatile and possibly abusive relationship, because then it gives you that distance from, from your ex-partner. 
Yeah, and that's really important because I we know, especially in those abusive relationships, how easily triggered people are, you know, and, and you don't want to be living in that perpetual state of fear that uh, there's going to be a ping and something else is going to come up. I mean, obviously, unless there are child protection issues, it is um, where does the law stand around um, allowing a child to have a relationship with each parent? Because I think that, as I say, unless there are, are safety reasons why they shouldn't, it's really important that the message is, you know, you, you, you have a right to have them have a relationship with your dad or with your mum or whatever it is. Absolutely. So there is a recognition that parents should be very involved with their children's lives and that parenting opportunity should be shared as equally as possible. That doesn't necessarily mean to say 50-50 during the week because there can be all sorts of reasons why that's just impractical. Not necessarily inappropriate, but just impractical and not workable. But there, there is absolutely a recognition that both parents should be involved and also that both parents' families should be involved. The only time we see that, and it's not necessarily to do with a child protection issue as such, is where there are domestic abuse issues and it would put the other parent at a risk to themselves and then possibly onto the children. That's when we can sometimes see questions of how contact should be dealt with and in what circumstances it should take place. That is an issue that I would say, if you are considering that, that's a real time to seek independent legal advice because what you don't want to do is be at risk of a criticism that you are trying to alienate your child from the other parent. So for example, if an individual has left a very abusive relationship and then they tell their child that it's not safe to see their other parent, you need to address that very sensitively and very carefully because otherwise that child might start to think my other parent is really dangerous and a really awful, horrible person when the situation might be far more complex than that. And if a case like that did go to court, you could be at real risk of criticism because even telling your child that another parent is dangerous or harmful is just as dangerous for that child because it gives them an incorrect understanding of what the situation is. And that's also quite confusing. Ultimately, a child is half their mum, half their dad. If you're giving it, a statement to a child that makes them think that half of them is wrong, half of them is awful, that can lead on to some very serious developmental issues with a child and, again, harms their welfare and well-being. So in those circumstances, do seek legal advice, but also do seek the support of domestic abuse groups. Um, the Freedom Programme is a real popular one that's nationwide, and there are other um, domestic abuse groups across the country, depending on the services that your area is able to provide. So actually what we're saying is wherever possible, make sure that your child knows that their, their other parent is an okay person. Even if you can't live with them and don't like them, that doesn't fundamentally mean there's anything, any reason why their parent shouldn't have a relationship. Um, so in terms of the, um, we've kind of, you mentioned finance, um, you know, child support, uh, how long does that go on for? What, what, what's the expectation? What could people, you know, rather than just splitting out your family finances, I think the child support actually 
part of it, the piece is important. So, so that, that's a really important part, like you say. So you've got as a starting point child maintenance, and that's dealt with by the Child Maintenance Service, who are a nationwide organization. Often in the circumstances where one child where a child lives with their parent for the majority of the time, the other parent would be the paying parent. And that calculation can be conducted via the Child Maintenance Service website. It's quite an easy to use website. What I would say, however, is it's on the basis of a gross income. And that is not always quite easy if maybe you're self-employed or if you have income coming from other sources. So let's say you have rental properties. It's This child maintenance service isn't great at doing that calculation. And I would say in those circumstances where you have various sources of income or you know that your ex-partner has various sources of income, go to the child maintenance service and they will conduct and assess uh, the correct value that should be being paid. It's usually up until the child is um, 18. However, there can be different circumstances. If, for example, let's say your child needs to finish um, or redo year 13 or redo college. So it might even be until the end of their education. Ultimately, your child maintenance money is used for the support of your children. That's, that, that's what it's designed to do. And there are lots of discussions about whether you use that towards childminding fees, towards nursery fees. Nursery fees can always be quite a delicate and difficult one, because mainly because of the costs of nursery. So if you've used your whole child maintenance service money on nursery, there might not actually be enough money available for the child's day-to-day necessities and goods. So maybe that's a discussion to have with your ex as to how are we going to deal with nursery fees and childminder fees? Who's going to be responsible for what? And I think it's about recognising as well that just because you pay child maintenance, if you can afford to do so, don't let that be an argumenting point. So, for example, don't say, I'm not going to buy the child a winter coat because I pay you child maintenance and you're meant to do that with that money. That can be a real conflict point and a real point of tension. It doesn't help with relationships. definitely doesn't help with the communication and dialogue. It's just about taking a very holistic approach that this money is used for the benefit of your children to ensure that they've got what they need. Brilliant advice. Thank you very much. Um, And then I suppose it's about the different parenting pathways once you have split isn't it because we always just used to think it was like split done but actually there's lots of different ways that people are doing things now and it'd be really helpful to to share your insights absolutely so parenting is one of those things that doesn't end um I don't have children of my own but I know um that my parents still very much are involved with my own life and I'm an adult so it's about recognizing that it's also about recognizing that regardless of how your divorce goes you will still both need to be involved in your children's life and you will still do things together, whether that's your child's graduation, whether that's later their own wedding day. Um, if they go on to have children of their own, you will still be grandparents together. But there are different ways of being able to parent when you have separated. There's the first idea of co-parenting. And this is where you're separate but you are still taking the same style 
and approach. So you are making decisions together and your house, your, your, your homes are consistent. So whether the child is at one parent's, bedtime is 9 p.m. Doesn't matter where they are, bedtime is 9 p.m. It's the same attitude about chores and household expectations. You know, at both parents' home, you're making your own bed in the morning. And that is consistent. There is another attitude of television programs. And quite a big one these days is, is use of social media. Social media is probably one of the biggest conflict points that I see. Because some people, they don't want their children on things like Instagram and TikTok um, or Snapchat before a certain age. And one parent might be more relaxed about that. That if you are co-parenting, you will have a unified decision on that and you will both run with it. So if, if, you've, if you've agreed that Instagram, when you're maybe 12 or 13 years old, then you go with it. The opposite is parallel parenting. And that is where whatever happens at one parent's happens there and whatever happens at another parent's is separate. Um, I'm seeing quite often this coming up with gaming, especially for young boys. There are a lot of games that might be 12 or 15 rated that children who are younger than those ages are playing. Now, at one parent's house, that might be an absolute no-no. But at another parent's house, that's okay. And if you're parallel parenting, you will be doing that. Parallel parenting can lead to quite a lot of frustration. And I would say that if you are parallel parenting, do not let your children pick up on that frustration. So saying things like, this isn't your dad's house, really highlights that to the children and can cause the children to be in quite a difficult situation. Recognise it and accept it. If you can explore co-parenting, then absolutely do so. Co-parenting is, is a preferred model when it's appropriate. But again, in some cases, it's not. In some cases, it is possible to make the transition. Quite often, if there's been quite an acrimonious divorce or separation and the temperature is really quite high, you might start off with parallel parenting because you are just unable to communicate about anything. However, as the dust settles a little bit, you might be able to make that transition into co-parenting where you have a united front on gaming, television, bedtimes, homework attitude, um, possibly if you've got maybe older children, relationships and going out independently. And that can be possible, but it will really just depend on the circumstances. What I would say is there are some things, though, that are nothing to do with either par parallel parenting or co-parenting. For example, what school your child is going to go to, regardless of which model you're adopting in your parenting style. If you've both got parental responsibility, you should both be involved in school placements um, or medical procedures, vaccinations and so forth. So you do need to take a view on it for those really big decisions in life. They are expected to be made together. If you can't make those decisions together, then you will need to go to court. But on co-parenting and parallel parenting, therefore the everyday activities and the everyday decisions. Brilliant. And then there is another little thing that I've come across, which is this idea of nesting. So nesting is a more bounced around term. Whether it's a more 
implemented idea, I don't quite know yet. I know that in none of my own caseload is actually being practiced. And I don't think in many other practitioners' caseload it's being practiced. This is the idea where there might be three homes. You've got the family home as a starting point and the children will always live there. They will not do a transition between mum's house at this time and dad's house at that time or whatever. They will stay in the family home and it will actually be the parents who move out and then come back to the family home to see the children. In principle, it's nice because the children have that stability and they've just got their own space. This can be quite a helpful idea, especially when you've got older children or children who are doing um, exam periods in their life. You, you know, you, you might have a child doing their GCSEs and they don't want to be bouncing between homes with all, all of their study material. They just want that stability. This is where their books are and so forth. But the reality of the situation is that this is expensive because you need to be able to effectively have funds to have possibly three properties. So if you've got a mortgage on your family home, you might also need to rent another property and funds are just going to dilapidate very quickly. There's also the other issue of in the family home, where are you going to sleep? Because if there's only one room with a double bed, how do you feel about effectively coming into the bed that your ex-partner has just slept in? There's also the question of welcoming new partners back to that home. That can be quite a delicate issue. And then there's the more practical maintenance things, the fridge, you know, are we touching milk? Are we going to be putting things in the bin? Um, tidying up after yourselves. Sometimes you can see arguments derive from that. But again, this is one of the things, it's depending on your financial situation and it's depending on the relationship that you've got with one another. If you are still relatively amicable and you can afford to do this, then in an interim period, it can provide your children with a lot of stability and a lot of structure. But it's got to be reflected on your own circumstances. And at the moment, as practitioners, we're not advising of it that much, but that's because especially in the current circumstances, it's just not affordable. By the time you've got that and the childcare and the maintenance are all lumped in together. It's an Absolutely. Sum, isn't it? This has been incredibly interesting. I've learned an awful lot, Annabelle. Is there, just before we finish, is there anything else that you would pitch? Any particular piece of advice you'd give um, a couples who are thinking of separating? Probably two things. At the start, get your ducks in order. Get everything organised from the start, and that will be incredibly helpful when dealing with the finances. Know what your finances are. Know what you've got. Know what you earn. Find out about what your pensions were. Pensions are such a neglected um, asset, and they are so valuable, regardless of what age you are. Don't think that because you're 30, your pension doesn't matter. It does. It's really important. So from the offset, get your finances organised. If you are tech savvy, perhaps have a little Excel sheet running in the background. That can be really helpful. I would say my second key tip is just be really honest with yourself about what you actually want to achieve and what you need. This is not about winning and losing. This is not about 
you know, getting back at the other person. It's it's not really, especially with the finances, it's not really about the morals. Yes, you might have divorced for an awful reason, but just be honest about with yourself about what you need and what you actually want to achieve so that it can just get done, settled, and you can both move on independently as soon as possible, rather than having protracted conversations really about the same thing. Brilliant advice. I, I think I'm a bit more brutal than that. I always say to people, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to decide whether you hate your ex more than you love your kids, because that's what really, really matters. You know, you're grown ups, you can move on. But actually for them, this is a massive deal and they need you. If you guys are OK and can do it in another way, then everybody moves on and is OK much quicker. Absolutely. And, you know, you've got to stay child focused in all of this. You you need to focus. I, I need to rehouse myself and my children. I need to provide them with stability and structure and routine and not get them involved in this adult stuff. And I think that's quite a good term. I like that term, adult stuff. It's got nothing to do with you guys. We're dealing with it, it's adult stuff. So Annabelle, thank you so much. Uh, Annabelle is at Debenhams Ottaway Solicitors if you want to contact them. I'm really, really grateful for you collaborating on this podcast because it's useful information that hopefully we don't need, but you know, statistics say that many of us will. So thanks, Annabelle. Thank you very much.